I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Rivals, the show about music beefs and feuds and long-simmering resentments between musicians. I'm Steve. And I'm Jordan. And today we're going to talk about Courtney Love versus Dave Grohl. Now, this feud has a tendency to get mischaracterized as basically what happens when you hate your buddy's girlfriend. You know, it's the old, tired Yoko Ono myth. But underneath that, it's a story of life after death and the complications that arise when two people have very different ideas about how to manage an artist's legacy. And in this case, it's the legacy of Kurt Cobain and Nirvana. We recently did an episode in which I called Jimi Hendrix's death at age 27 the greatest tragedy in rock history. I'm sure that there are people who would make the same case for Kurt Cobain dying also at the age of 27 being an equally big tragedy. You know, not only did we lose so much potential music, but a wife lost a husband and a daughter lost a father. And then you have these fights over legacy that inevitably happen in cases like this. It's all just depressing, really. Yeah, to me, there's really a genuine sadness in this feud. It's like a family that was torn apart by drama and greed and petty squabbles after the patriarch died. But thankfully, the Muppets make an appearance in this episode, so hopefully that'll offset some of the darkness. <laughs> well, now that I know that the Muppets are involved, I'm suddenly much less depressed. So without further ado, let's get into this mess. According to lore, Kurt met Courtney at a club in Portland in either 1989 or 1990. Sources vary. Uh, she teased him, saying that he looked like the singer from Soul Asylum. And within minutes, they were play wrestling on the floor of the bar. And it, it feels like this is a really appropriate way to start this entire story, wrestling on the floor of a bar. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, Courtney Love in this era, it's funny because, you know, we all think of her as like this 90s icon, but, 
if you watch movies from the 80s, like the Alex Cox movies, uh, Sid and Nancy and Straight to Hell, I remember like the first time I saw those movies, I was like, what is Courtney Love doing here? Like she just shows up in those movies and she wasn't famous yet, but she was kind of like a scenester, like on the fringes of like a lot of different things. Yeah, exactly. Kurt definitely knew who she was, not only for her role in the music scene, but for her role in these movies too. And there was definitely a mutual attraction right off the bat, but Kurt was still with his longtime girlfriend, Tracy Marinder, and uh, and it wasn't going to happen then. But uh, there have been a lot of myths about Courtney and her motives for wanting to get together with Kurt, and you know a lot of these have been tinged with jealousy and sexism. But it definitely seems like Courtney was the aggressor when it came to getting together. She had a huge crush on him, and she started following Nirvana's press coverage, basically like an avid sports fan. Although it's funny, she wasn't really all that sold on their music. She was more into Mud Honey. But... About a year or two went by, and uh, one of Courtney's friends was dating Dave Grohl. And so that was her in the Nirvana camp. You know, when you tell your uh, your friend that you think that their friend is cute, you know it's going to immediately get back to him. It's a classic, classic move. Uh, so she told Dave about her crush on Kurt, and Dave told her that uh, Kurt was actually now single. So uh, Courtney decides to shoot her shot, and she sent Kurt a heart-shaped box filled with a tiny porcelain doll dried roses, seashells, and a miniature teacup, which he rubbed with perfume like a magical charm, which is a bit more Stevie Nicks than I would have expected from Courtney Love, but still very interesting. Yeah, and of course, Heart Shaped Box, that ends up being the title of an iconic Nirvana song. So you can already see that Courtney Love, like from the beginning, was, I think, having a huge impact on Kurt Cobain. You know, you said this thing earlier about how you know she had been pursuing him for almost like two years. I mean, she had a crush on him. Wasn't sure about Nirvana's music, but like thought Kurt Cobain uh, was was really something else. And they don't really hook up until the fall of 1991. Now, what else happens in the fall of 1991? <laughs> well, that is the release of Nevermind, which comes out in September of that year. And that album, of course, goes off like a rocket. And I remember like when Smells Like Teen Spirit, you know, that video hitting MTV. And my memory of it is that like, one day there was no Smells Like Teen Spirit, and then the next day that video was playing every 15 minutes. I mean, it just seemed like Nirvana took over the culture so quickly in the fall of 1991. And I think for people who are skeptical of Courtney Love or just flat out dislike Courtney Love, they look at this timeline and it's very easy to be cynical about this and say, well, of course she is choosing this moment in time to finally make her move on Kurt Cobain because he is now all of a sudden a certifiable rock star, you know, maybe the biggest rock star on the planet. And, you know, the thing with Courtney Love is, you know, I think there's people that look at her as purely evil and people that look at her as this misunderstood person that is actually much better than like how she's perceived. And my take on Courtney Love is that everything about Courtney is messy and complicated and you can't really put her <laughs> like in any one slot. I do think that she's a victim of sexism. I do think that she has been treated unfairly in the media almost from the time that she became famous. But I also think that she's an opportunist who was very ambitious. And I don't think that she pursued Kurt Cobain just to further her career. I think she was genuinely interested in him. But I'm sure the fact that he was now hugely successful was not a turnoff to her. I mean, don't you think? I mean, is, am I being too hard on her? I, I just feel like both things can be true at the same time. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that she was definitely in the Kurt long before he could have been any help to her career, I think. So I think that's definitely genuine. But yeah, the monster levels of fame that he now had certainly didn't hurt. I mean, there was a great description of Courtney in a, uh, in a 1994 EW article where they described her as a dangerous combination of flamboyant instability and focused ambition. 
I know that was a pretty good, like, both sides of Courtney Coyne description right there. Yeah, exactly. I think that's totally right. I think it captures her. And that's why she's such a fascinating figure. And I think one of the great rock stars of that time. Like, I could just read any article written about Courtney Love in the early 90s. You know, she's just like a fountain of quotes and, uh, you know, crazy anecdotes. And she's never a dull moment with Courtney Love. And Kurt and Courtney, you know, just like Nevermind ends up being like a rocket. I mean, their relationship is also like a rocket. I mean, they started dating in the fall of 91. And by the following February, you know, I guess what, like four or five months later, they're already married. They got married in Hawaii. uh, And Courtney Love, I guess, was pregnant already with Francis Bean at this time. And you can already see that there's like, dissension in the Nirvana ranks about Courtney Love because I guess Chris Novoselic didn't show up to the wedding. It was like a pretty small ceremony. I don't think there were any family members there either, but like... It was like eight people. Eight people, but like weirdly enough, Dave Grohl was at the wedding. And there's a photo, I think if you Google like Kurt Cobain wedding Dave Grohl, you will find this photo in Google Images where he's like standing between them, I think holding both of their hands. Uh, Courtney Love is wearing this like white dress that used to belong to uh, the actress Frances Farmer. Kurt Cobain, of course, is wearing uh, green checkered pajamas in this photo. <laughs> which, which are now an heirloom, by the way. Yes. Francis Bean did a whole photo shoot in them. And then Dave Grohl's in the middle. And like, what is, how should we read Dave Grohl's facial expression here? Because I feel like he's smiling and he's obviously at the wedding. But like, should we read like awkwardness into this photo? Is he uncomfortable? I, I you know, we're not... It, my, his state of mind at this time to me is unclear. Right. I can't tell if it's like staged, funny, oh, we're having an awkward family photo. I'm going to make an awkward family photo face. Or if he's genuinely like not sure how to react and not sure how he feels about this. Uh, my gut is leaning towards the latter uh, because Courtney's had a hard time, I think, fitting into the Nirvana framework. I, I, I was watching um, the the Montage of Heck documentary recently, and there's some really incredible home movie footage that was taken when the band was in the studio and and at rehearsals and stuff. And you watch how the band talked to Courtney, and it can be brutal. There's a a shot of, I think, Steve Albini just like yelling at, at Courtney behind the camera, like, you're not on stage right now. You can't do that here. And like another one where like Dave Grohl's like making fun of her hair, saying that she should like straighten her hair because it makes her face look less round. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's like good natured, like band, like sibling, like, you know, needling kind of thing. But I don't know. There's definitely seems like there's an edge to it. And the, the edge comes through in that photo. And this dynamic between Nirvana and Courtney Love, again, I feel like any attempt to simplify it doesn't quite tell the whole story. Because if you just say that, well, the guys in Nirvana were sexist or, you know, they were. I guess, expecting Courtney Love to know her place. I think there's some truth in that. But I also think there's some truth in the idea that Courtney Love maybe was not a great influence on Kurt Cobain at this time. And Kurt Cobain probably wasn't a good influence for her either. I mean, they were, I think very quickly, they had this pathology about them of being like the new Sid and Nancy. And there was that famous, I think it was a Vanity Fair story by Lynn Hirschberg that really fueled that impression that these two were basically, you know, just junkies who were also parents and just not fit to be in the role that they were in. So it it seems like there was a very kind of complicated stew here going on of like the guys in Nirvana being protective, but then also maybe not really respecting Courtney Love the way they should have. Yeah. I mean, they definitely viewed her as a bad influence. And I think that they assumed that she brought him deeper into his heroin addiction A lot of people in later years would say that that was not true. I think the biographer Charles Cross, who wrote uh, uh, Heavier Than Heaven, um, would say, like, Courtney apparently had been clean for months when she first got together with Kurt. And according to him, 
she made a conscious choice to to basically start using again because being with Kurt in order to be with him meant drugs essentially. So the whole sort of mythology of Courtney being this you know Lady Macbeth figure who got Kurt hooked on heroin and everything is is patently untrue and and really unfair. But that's not to say that they weren't horrifically codependent and not exactly a good influence on each other too. And I think the band picked up on that. Yeah. In that same Vanity Pair story, there's a, a moment when I guess Dave Grohl calls their house and wants to talk to uh, to to Kurt and Courtney answers and she passes the phone over to Kurt and she rolls her eyes at, at the author of the story and goes everyone hates my guts in this band. Like, they all hate me. So I think from very early on, she picked up on that. You know, have you ever had a friend who is, like, dating someone and maybe, like, the individual people in the relationship, they're both good people, but when they get together, it's, like, two bad elements coming (laughs) together and it just creates a toxic stew. And you're just, like... it creates a third element that's bad. Yeah, Yeah. and, like, and you're just, like, you're just telling your friend, like, dump that person. Get away from them. This is, like, terrible for you. I, I feel like to some degree, maybe the guys in Nirvana were like that. Because it's like, even if you recognize, again, I think they were bad influences on each other. I think Kurt Cobain, like you said, he was, I think, probably just as destructive to Courtney Love as as she was to him. But it was just like together, maybe it just seemed like there was a weird mojo going on that maybe other people could pick up on. I mean, I think the other thing, too, that like you really can't downgrade is that Courtney Love was also a big instigator in changing the royalty agreement that the guys in Nirvana had. Because I, I think originally, like, wasn't it an even split between the three of them? And then she was pushing for Kurt to get, like, a bigger piece of the pie? Yeah, th- there's been a lot of debate on that. I mean, after Nevermind went through the roof, I guess Kurt supposedly threatened to quit if his bandmates didn't agree to changing the uh, the split agreement on the songwriting royalties. And yeah, they had divided it evenly before. And I guess now Kurt wanted a, a 75% to 25% split for the music. And then he was going to get 100% of the lyrical cut. And Dave and Chris felt betrayed, but, you know, they didn't want to torpedo this band that was now, you know, the biggest band in the world. So they went along with it, but they blamed Courtney for this. And whether or not that's right or wrong is up for debate. Again, Charles Cross, again, says that the decision was actually all Kurt's. It's impossible to know for sure, but the band at least believed it to be Courtney's uh, doing. And in fairness, I mean, Kurt Cobain was writing the songs. I mean, so I understand whether it was Kurt's idea to do that or Courtney or them together. It's not outrageous for him to ask for that. The argument for splitting things evenly is that these sorts of arguments always derail bands. So there are bands that will just split things evenly just to take it out of the equation. But, you know, if you have someone who is coming up with all the material, you know, there's going to be some resentment probably on his part, and he's going to feel like he deserves more of the money. Of course, you know, the irony of this, if irony is the right word, is that, you know, like you said, Grohl and Novoselic, they agreed to this to keep Nirvana together. But then, of course, Nirvana didn't last much longer because Kurt Cobain takes his own life in 1994. And now they have this, you know, uneven split greatly in Kurt Cobain's favor, but now it's going to be Courtney Love who's going to have the advantage of that. So that's going to complicate things as we move into this sort of post-Kurt Cobain era. Yeah, and I mean, the late 90s, the feud doesn't really erupt publicly because I think everyone is just so shocked by by what had happened and it just would be, you know, not a very good look for Kurt Cobain's widow to be feuding with his former bandmates. But Dave Grohl has been recording his, his debut album with the Foo Fighters in the wake of Kurt's death. And of course, Nirvana fans are listening really closely, trying to hear any kind of like lyrical clue to, you know, what Dave might say about Kurt's passing or something. And the one song that really sticks out to these people are I'll Stick Around, 
which features the line, I'm the only one who sees your rehearsed insanity, which <laughs> many took to be about Courtney. Which you're not the only one who sees that, by the way, Dave Grohl. I think a lot of other people saw that, <laughs> but, you know, be that as it may. I guess there was going to be a video, too, that was supposed to, like, have a floating vision of this, like, bloated, inflatable girl that was supposed to represent Courtney. But Dave's management was like, yeah, you you don't want to do that. You don't want to go down that road. Please don't do that. Yeah, that would have been uh, underlining it probably a little bit too much. I mean, that comes out on the first Foo Fighters record, which drops in, in 95 and, you know, is really, I mean, that record did really well. And then the next bunch of records did even better, really establishing Dave Grohl as like a viable solo artist. I think of that song, Stacked Actors, that appeared on the third Foo Fighters record, There's Nothing Left left to Lose, where he sings, stack dead actors, stack to the rafters, line up you bastards, all I want is the truth, they all die blonde. Which, you know, (laughs) the thing with that song, I think the context of that, and I feel like people forget this, that there was this period in the 90s, like where Courtney Love was like a really viable, like, yeah, movie star, almost like an A-list star. She was like in the People versus Larry Flint. She was in uh, Man in the Moon, the the, the Milos Forman, Andy Coppin biopic. And she had this makeover where, you know, she went from being this, you know, very aggressive punk rock woman in the early 90s to being this, like, beautiful, glamorous movie star. Marilyn Monroe style. Yeah, yeah. it was an incredible transformation that happened after Kurt Cobain died. And, again, I think for cynics looking at this, it was very easy to look at Courtney Love and say she is parlaying the notoriety that she got from Nirvana and Kurt Cobain's death. And just, she's like parlayed it into this very sort of conventional Hollywood stardom. And, you know, again, as with all things with Courtney Love, I think that is, on one hand, horribly unfair. But on the other hand, it's like not totally untrue either. Like there is an element of truth there that it just makes it, I think, really fascinating to talk about Courtney Love and also difficult because yeah, you can't really put her in any one box. Right. I mean, Dave is, has been very uh, wary of of confirming what that song's about, but I'll stick around. He's definitely said, he confirmed to his biographer that, you know, I don't think it's any secret that I'll stick around about Courtney. I've denied it for 15 years, he said a ways back, but I'll just come out and say it. Just read the words. Yeah. Uh, it's like just... Just admit that Stacked Actors is too. I feel like that right. is a pretty direct hit at Courtney Love, especially considering that like in 99, I think that was the year of like his big Howard Stern interview, like where he went after Courtney Love. Because like I feel like that's the moment where this feud kind of goes from being like a behind the scenes thing to like going full out in the public. Yeah, this is when the flames first start to appear. There was smoke before, but this is when it gets, this is when it gets hot. Dave Grohl goes on Howard Stern and uh, he's asked what his favorite whole song is, what, what his favorite song in the, in the whole discography. And he cites Teenage Whore, and he says, it's because I know she, she being Courtney, it's because I know she wrote it. Ah. And, ooh, which is an apparent insinuation that other people, specifically Kurt, helped her pad out Hole's uh, 1994 breakout album, Live Through This, which there's kernel truth to that, as with most rumors. Kurt did sing backing vocals on two songs, Asking For It and Softer Softest, and he also wrote a B-side, Old Age, but I don't think he was credited on that. And he, uh, given that the album came out a week after Kurt's death, Kurt really wasn't able to rebuke any of these rumors himself. But aside from just pure sexism and general dislike of Courtney, listeners kind of observed that the sound was very different from Hole's first album, Pretty on the Inside. And, you know, a marriage is a creative partnership, especially theirs. And I'm sure they inspired one another, just like Courtney inspired a lot of stuff on In Utero, too. I mean, Kurt started writing differently on that, too. 
But, uh, but yeah, those rumors have been persisting for years that Kurt was really sort of the ghostwriter of uh, Live Through This. Well, there's that, and there's also the album Celebrity Skin that Billy Corgan was a big contributor to. And I think he's actually credited as a co-writer on like four or five songs, including the single Malibu. So it's not like that was some sneaky thing. But yeah, that's always been the thing like with the two most successful whole records that Courtney Love was basically relying on the men in her life at that time to uh, write songs and, and, and to prop her up artistically, which, yeah, it's a very sexist thing to say, because I think clearly those records, like Hole, Live Through This, there is like a Nirvana-like element to it, but there's also a very sort of strong Courtney Love element to that record, too. I would say that Live Through This is actually an even more scathing record than In Utero is. Like, like Courtney Love like yeah. goes like another step farther. And I think Celebrity Skin is a record that like you can hear some of the Billy Corgan influences, but it's like, it doesn't sound like Smashing Pumpkins. It sounds like an like an L.A. rock record. It sounds like her version of like a Fleetwood Mac record, which Courtney Love has always been very upfront about that being an influence on her. And it seems more Courtney than it would be Billy Corgan. But, you know, Courtney Love, she's not going to take this lying down <laughs> that Dave Grohl is accusing her of, you know, being artistically illegitimate. She goes on Howard Stern herself and she says, one, Kurt hated Dave Grohl and like wanted him out of the band. I think she says like he hated his guts. She like sang a song. She made up a song on the spot, just basically consisting of the words. Like he hated him. Just brutal. And then she says that, you know, that Dave Grohl stood out in Nirvana because he was like this nice guy, almost like a jock type person, you know, next to Kurt and Chris, who are more of these, you know, sort of sensitive art weirdo types. And it's fascinating to me because like, if you look at these dueling interviews that they're doing, they're basically calling each other posers, you know, which is like the most mm. punk rock of all insults, you know, because like Dave is saying that Courtney Love is artistically a poser, that she's not really writing her own songs. Whereas Courtney is saying that Dave is like a lifestyle poser, that like he's this rock guy, but he's really just sort of like, you know, like this lame dude who uh, ended up in Nirvana, but he really wasn't of Nirvana. He didn't really like, represent the spirit of the band. One thing that she said that I thought was funny was that she says that like whenever Dave Grohl like goes after her, that he doesn't like attack her directly he implies it which he says is even lamer you know which is a very Courtney Love thing to do because Courtney Love yeah. you know she goes for the jugular she jumps into the mosh pit you know she will throw punches and Dave Grohl is this sort of like Teflon rocker in a lot of ways he's I mean like now he's like the mayor of rock and roll essentially like he's like this everyone loves Dave Grohl I, I love Dave Grohl I think you love Dave Grohl he's the Tom Hanks of rock he's yes. very charming and he's and he's done a lot of great things in music but to me like I think what is compelling about these interviews is that they both, I think, draw blood in, in their comments. Mm. I think there's, I think that they're hitting each other's soft spots because there's a lot of truth, I think, in what each of them are saying. Not so much, I don't think it's true necessarily that Dave, what Dave said about Courtney Love, you know, sort of not writing her own songs, but like the idea of her, I guess, just being an opportunist or someone who puts herself in the right position. There's a ring of truth to that, just as it is with Dave Grohl, that he is maybe the jockiest guy in Nirvana. Like, there's some truth to that. So, yeah, they're both drawing blood with these interviews big time. All right, hang on. We'll be right back with more Rivals. My name is Johnny B. Good, and I'm the host of the new podcast, Creating a Con, the story of BitCon. Over this nine-part series, I'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend, Ray Trapani. I always wanted to be a criminal. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. You see, Ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them. They collected $30 million. 
There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. He came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the Ferryman of Souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tail. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same exact set of seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including actress and star of the mega hit sitcom Friends, Courtney Cox. You can't go around it, so you just go through it. This is a roadblock. It's going to catch you down the road. Go through it. Deal with it. Comedian, writer, and star of the series Catastrophe, Rob Delaney. I shouldn't feel guilty about my son's death. He died of a brain tumor. It's part of what happens when your kid dies. Intellectually, you'll understand that it's not your fault, but you'll still feel guilty. Alt-rock icon, Liz Fair. That personal disaster wrote Guyville. So everything comes out of a dead end. And many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. So this is now out in the open. The feud has erupted, and it goes absolutely uh, next level in uh, 2001 when Nirvana plans to release a, a 10th anniversary box set of rarities, and it would include a new Nirvana song, You Know You're Right, which is one of the last things the band ever recorded. And uh, Courtney blocks its release, and she said that the song would have been wasted on a box set and it would have been better suited to a singles collection, kind of like the Beatles one, which had just gone, you know, multi, multi, multi-platinum, which is not a bad, uh, th- that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you know, people are going to buy $15 on, a, on an album for a new Nirvana song versus shelling out, you know, like 100 bucks for a box set. It's a good business decision for sure. It, maybe it's a better fan decision to put it on a box set because you're getting all this other stuff. But like, if you want to squeeze money out of people and force them to buy songs they already have, put it on the Greatest Hits album because people are definitely going to buy that. Right. So she bars their use of this song. And this sparks an enormous legal feud, and not to get too granular about it, basically about their legal partnership of Nirvana. And the thumbnail version is a few years after Kurt died, um, Grohl, Novoselic, and Love all came together in a business partnership. And Courtney, 
in later years would say that she was sort of coerced into this, that she'd gotten bad advice from her lawyers and that they, the surviving Nirvana band members, she was grief stricken and not in a good headspace. And they basically forced her to sign this document that would make them all partners. And, uh, and so now she wants out. She wants to control Nirvana's legacy completely. She thinks that Dave and Chris have interfered with poor stewards of her husband's legacy and have interfered with a Kurt Cobain movie and prevented all sorts of Nirvana releases. And apparently she says that they even threatened us destroy Nirvana recordings, which is crazy if true. I mean, it doesn't, I can't imagine that's true. So she wants to dissolve this partnership because she basically says, you know what, this, it was never a partnership in life. Kurt was Nirvana. Nirvana was Kurt's songs. And so Kurt was Nirvana. Uh, she had a great quote from a lawsuit, which said, this could never be a partnership because it was the living manifestation of the creative vision, personal will, and life force of a single unique individual. Basically, Nirvana was a young uh, one-man show, and uh, Dave and Chris were sidemen, especially Dave, who was, she basically wrote off as being like the band's sixth drummer, period. <laughs> right. uh, so that's where she was at with that. She wanted to break the uh, partnership up. Now, uh, this might surprise you, but Dave and Chris didn't agree with this assessment. They thought we are not sidemen, that Nirvana was a band, and that they basically painted Courtney Love as, again, this person who is using the legacy of Nirvana to further her own ends. And they go into all these like crazy accusations against Courtney Love. Like they said that she allowed Smells Like Teen Spirit to be in the Baz Luhrmann movie Moulin Rouge. Because she like wanted to be in the movie uh, and that the role that she wanted actually went to Nicole Kidman ultimately. And again, there's this like whole idea that she is just leveraging all of the credibility that Nirvana has to, like, to line her own pockets. And I think that was their argument in favor of the box set. Like they felt like this was the best way to represent their legacy and that she was holding it hostage. They ended up countersuing Courtney Love because they wanted to like basically get her out of the partnership, right? They wanted, like, basically Frances when she came of age. Somebody was a little less combative to be in the, in the Nirvana partnership because they just didn't want to deal with Courtney anymore. I, I think they settled uh, out of court in around sometime in 2002 for, I assume, a gazillion dollars. I have no idea how much, but uh, it's not been made public. But, yeah, so Courtney ends up still staying part of the partnership. You know, there's another issue at this time, too, that when Chris and Dave were responding to, like, the Courtney Love accusations, they talk about how, you know— they both made a point to not talk about Kurt Cobain after he died. Like, they didn't do any interviews about him. And they didn't like the fact that Courtney Love would sort of freely talk about Kurt all the time in interviews. They felt that she was basically misrepresenting his death and, and what his intentions were in the band. And, and clearly, like, these the, you know these comments about how, you know, Kurt didn't really respect his bandmates and that he looked at it as, as, as like a one-man show, essentially. I mean, that stuff must have especially rankled his bandmates in Nirvana. But again, it's just like... It's interesting because, like, on one hand, you I can see their perspective, but it's also like Courtney Love is his wife. Like, yeah. you know, that's her, that's her husband. I feel like there's a different standard there in terms of like what she's allowed to talk about in an interview. Uh, I don't know. Again, it's just like part of the messiness of these types of situations because you're dealing with Kurt Cobain as basically as a product on one hand, like like the most valuable product of this company that they formed. But he was also a human being, you know, and like, how do you grieve a human being, but also preserve the financial viability of the product at the same time? I mean, it seems like that's a big tension right here. Yeah, it's such a testament to how they all dealt with grief, too. I mean, you know, I, I guess Courtney sort of outranked the other two because as his wife rather than band members. But I don't know, but Chris, too, I mean, they, they were high school friends together, they were childhood friends and everything, too. Yeah, it, it's I can definitely see how they would think it would be really disrespectful for her to sort of be as open as she was about 
their their relationship in dirty laundry. But um, yeah, I guess at the end of the day, it comes down to like different people grieve differently and, and accepting that, I suppose. But yeah, the whole lawsuit didn't really do much for their interpersonal relationships too. And, and Courtney ended up getting her own way and there was a, a single disc greatest hits uh, compilation that came out with the unreleased Nirvana song in, in Christmas 2002. And things kind of quieted down for a few years with the, the feud between Dave and Courtney. And then the Foo Fighters released Echoes, Silence, Patience, and Grace in 2007. And it has the song Let It Die, which many assumed was a sketch of, of Kurt and Courtney. The lyrics depict a simple man and his blushing bride, intravenous, intertwined. You're so considerate. Did you ever think of me? Which, uh, I mean, you got heron references in there. And I, I always wondered if the did you ever think of me was his sort of plea to Kurt sort of not to go. Um, and... Dave has addressed this, and he's kind of been really uh, enigmatic about what the song was about. He said he was written about feeling helpless to someone else's demise, ah. which I think, there you go right there, yeah. Well, then he actually just flat out called her, and pardon me for saying this, an ugly fucking bitch at one point, didn't he, Like uh, during a concert yes. around this time? That is true, yes. I think it was around that time. That's a little less little less poetic, I guess, is a way to put yeah, it. Yeah, it's like if you're going to say that on stage, like why all the sort of coy answers about the song? I mean, if you're going to – I mean, because that's a pretty brutal thing to say about the widow of your former bandmate. I mean, that's uh, that's not the Dave Grohl nice guy that we're used to uh, talking about. But I think it really speaks to, I guess, the frustration of this time, you know, just kind of going through that lawsuit and – everything that they had been through up to that point. Yeah, I have like a hard time believing it. Like I was like really trying to like find a video of it or something. Like it seems like really out of character, but yeah, apparently it, it is true. Hopefully it's not true. We'll just put it out there. It's, yeah, but you're it, right. But it, yeah. It's been often reported that he said that around that time. And of course, Courtney Love, she hears about this. She's not a fan of this song. She goes after Dave Grohl. And I don't know if she took this tack before in her attacks on Dave Grohl. Because, like, at this point, she's basically saying that, like, he's talking about me all the time because he's actually, like, attracted to me. Or, like, he actually, like, wanted to go out with me. I guess she goes, like, on, on MySpace. That's how long ago this was, by the way. She, <laughs> yeah. goes, she, she does a MySpace post where she says basically that, like, like, you're so obsessed with me. You write all these songs about me all the time. You've, like, hit on me, you know, like, when we've been together. And <laughs> she has this quote that's pretty funny. She says, He's just a sub-mediocre kind of guy who does this nice guy nonsense. Nice guys in quotes. There isn't a word that he could say that would ruffle my feathers, honestly. Anyway, what a fun, fabulous, special evening. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> sub-mediocre kind of. That, that's up there with, with Bill Murray calling Chevy Chase a medium talent. Exactly. That's like an incredible insult. So again, you know, she's saying that you know, he's a phony, essentially. That he is actually... Not that nice of a guy, but he has this nice guy image. And then also insinuating that, like, he's actually into her. And, and that's why he keeps talking about her all the time. So, yeah, things have really reached another, like, new low at this point. Yeah, but then we get to probably my favorite wrinkle in the Dave Courtney feud, which is in 2009, uh, they have licensed Kurt Cobain's likeness to Guitar Hero, <laughs> video game Guitar Hero. And, uh, and you can play Kurt Cobain playing Smells Like Teen Spirit. And he's dressed in, in just like the video, which, okay, that's fine. But there's a bonus feature in this game where you could make Kurt play all the other available songs in this game, which means that there are scenes where Kurt Cobain could be seen rocking out to You Give Love a Bad Name and Billy Ugh. Idol tracks. And there's clips of this on YouTube, and it is actually genuinely jarring and shocking to see it's really weird and fans of course were up in arms over this 
And then both Courtney and the surviving members of Nirvana basically point their fingers at each other saying it was them. It was their fault. Yeah, Courtney, she goes on this basically just tear on Twitter, 214 tweets about this (laughs) Guitar Hero thing. And one of the more memorable tweets, she says, you can ass rape Dave. He was always a bad seed and is still writing the shit while I take bullets. If there's a hell, he's going. I'm not. Um I feel like there should be some punctuation in there. It's a little hard to read, Courtney. Yeah. Um, look, I have to say, like, this is repulsive to me that, like, you can sell <laughs> the likeness of someone who's no longer living and put him in a video game and just make him do, like, whatever you want. Like, that just seems so wrong to me. I guess, like, like Dave and Chris, like, they basically said, like, well, we didn't know that they were going to do this. And I think they asked uh, Guitar Hero to basically, like, lock the image so that he can only play Nirvana songs. But even then, I just find that so weird. Like, why would you do that? I I, I just think there's, like, something really wrong <laughs> about... And it's going to get worse yeah. with all the, all the deep fakes and all the holograms. It's going to get so much worse, oh, man. In, like, in the coming years. But yeah, they basically were like, we just said that you could use the music, like the likeness and stuff was all Courtney. That's all, you know, she is the head of his estate. That's all, that's all her doing. I mean, did anyone own up to this? Did anyone ever say like, oh, this is my fault? Or did they just say like, no, it was the other person? Like, Is that how that ended? I think the video game company was like, no, we worked really closely with Courtney. She like chose what outfit he was going to wear and everything. And she was actually really great to work with. <laughs> it, it sounds like, I mean, she was the one who was actually the point person with the video game company. And my guess is that she just wasn't aware of the stuff she was signing, which I mean, you know, sounds that, that holds water that she wasn't sure that it was actually going to be this like special feature where you could play all these other songs that Kurt would never be, never be caught in a million years playing. So it seems like the pattern that we've had so far is that Dave Grohl will write a song in which he vaguely refers to Courtney Love, or you have the instance of the Howard Stern interview where he's directly impugning her artistic uh, contributions to her own records. But the next step in this battle occurs in 2011, and now it's Courtney Love being the instigator. Oh, yeah, this is brutal. It's mid-concert at the SWU Festival in Brazil, and a fan holds up a picture of Kurt Cobain in front of Courtney, which I, I guess could be triggering. I mean, I, you know, it's it probably still upsetting, I imagine. Oh, yeah. That's not a cool thing to do. That's like her no, dead husband. No. You don't need to bring right. that to a show. What are you doing? Absolutely, yeah. However, this provoked a very lengthy tirade from Courtney, who said it was stupid and rude, which it was, and that she has to live with his ghost every day, which is horrible, and that she was going to beat the fuck out of the dude if he held up that picture again. Very Courtney love. By this point, she was rolling and she just really started to unload. You know, you weren't fucking married to him. I was. But then, this all scans to this point, but then she rounds on Dave. You weren't kicked out of a band by him like Dave. (laughs) It's just an amazing way to segue into an insult by telling a crowd that, like, Kurt Cobain kicked Dave Grohl out of Nirvana. She said, go see the fucking Foo Fighters and do that shit. I don't care what you listen to at home, but if a guy takes money off my kid's table, fuck him. Yeah. So I don't know how Dave Grohl got in the middle of that. It was just sort of like a, no. she was just like a stream of consciousness rant. And all of a sudden she's taking shots at Dave Grohl. But I mean, this is a narrative in the, in the Nirvana story, this idea of like, if Nirvana had somehow carried on, would Dave Grohl have either been fired from the band or if he would have left the band? And look, I am of, I'm of the opinion that like Nirvana became the world conquering Nirvana when Dave Grohl joined. That, like, if he hadn't been the drummer, oh, totally. I don't think that Nevermind would have been as successful as it was. Like, if you listen to some of those songs played, like, with different drummers, like, it doesn't sound like the record. It doesn't sound like 
I mean, there's still good songs. It's, and I love Bleach. I love, you know, the songs on Incesticide. But there's no question that, like, the arena rock Nirvana, you know, the pop rock Nirvana, just gained so much from the power and precision that Dave Grohl brought to the proceedings. And, I mean, he's really, like, one of my favorite drummers of all time. I mean, the downside to me of the Foo Fighters is that Dave Grohl doesn't play drums that much anymore. Yeah. And I, I just love him as a drummer. But it, it does seem like there was some truth to the idea that Dave Grohl was considering leaving because Kurt Cobain would make disparaging comments about his drumming. There's a story from Dave Grohl's biography where I guess Dave Grohl overheard uh, Kurt Cobain complaining about Dave's shitty drumming, which is insane to me that you call Dave Grohl a shitty drummer. But like he wanted uh, Grohl to play more like Dan Peters from Mud Honey. Basically to be more of like a punk rock drummer. I think really Kurt Cobain, I think his problem with Dave Grohl's drumming wasn't that it was shitty. is It was that it was too slick probably or it was like too good. Yeah. I think he actually wanted a shitty drummer. And he was <laughs> mad that Dave Grohl actually wasn't shitty. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you feel about this. I think this is like a, a, a thought experiment that all Nirvana fans play that if Nirvana had continued, would Dave Grohl stay in the band? Because obviously he was already writing the songs that would be on the first Foo Fighters record. And he had a much different sensibility uh, from Kurt Cobain. It's hard for me to imagine that he would have stayed. I mean, because he was writing great songs. I don't think they would have really fit in the context of Nirvana. I just feel like he probably would have been out. Like in, in a universe where Nirvana stays together in the 90s, I feel like Dave would have been out by like 95, 96. Yeah, it's so interesting because it's like you can't really trust what he says now because it just the revisionism and everything is so strong given what happened to Kurt. He gave an interview to Howard Stern a couple of years ago where he was basically asked this. Was, uh, and he said, yeah, I was writing songs, but Nirvana was great. I was happy just being a drummer and I didn't want to interfere with what Kurt was doing, which I just, I find that impossible to believe. I don't know. I just see him as like this George Harrison figure of like bursting with ideas and potential, being stuck in this thing that, yes, is hugely successful, but really doesn't allow him any kind of outlet whatsoever. I mean, maybe he would start contributing songs to Nirvana. Maybe he would have his own side project as the Foo Fighters, which, you know, I think then would definitely be, you know, second banana to Nirvana, obviously, uh, and probably way less, you know, he probably would, would put out a quarter of the number of albums that he's released because I imagine his energy would go to Nirvana all that time. Uh, yeah, it, it's tough to say. I, I can't imagine he would stick around. Yeah, and... If there was already negativity anyway coming from Kurt about his playing, it just seems yeah. like, I don't know, it's just hard for me to imagine Dave doing that. But getting back to that Brazil show where Courtney just went off <laughs> about, you know, sparked by the Kurt Cobain photo, she did an interview after that concert where she picked up the attack on Dave Grohl. Like she went after him again. Yeah, she just, she just keeps rolling. She says that Dave didn't write a single note for the band. And she said, I, I wasn't in Nirvana. However, I do own Nirvana, <laughs> which is such an amazing mic drop. With my daughter, she adds. Um, and then she starts complaining about how it's not fair that, that Dave has a Nirvana Inc. credit card that he can buy, you know, Aston Martins on and stuff. And meanwhile, he's getting $5 million a show that, you know, why is he such a big player in the Nirvana legacy when he didn't write anything and Kurt owns 100% of the publishing was her, was her gripe. So, yeah, we're in the era now where, you know, we've moved out of the era where Dave Grohl was writing veiled insults at Courtney Love. And now we're in the era where Courtney Love is just doing both barrels at Dave Grohl, seemingly in every interview. And we get to uh, 2012. And I feel like, you know, we've talked about, you know, this rivalry reaching like new lows at, 
every step of the way. This is the lowest of the low, I think. This is so bad. At this point. This so bad. So Courtney Love, she goes on another like multi-tweet thread uh, just railing at Dave Grohl where she accuses Grohl of hitting on Francis Bean. I mean, did she say that it went beyond that? I think she said it went beyond that. Yeah, I think sed- I think the word used was seduced, I believe. Oh, man. So that's implying yeah. that there was some sort of physical relationship between Dave Grohl and Kurt Cobain's very young daughter. And, uh, of course, Dave Grohl immediately denies this, as does Francis Bean. Francis Bean actually has, like, the most devastating uh, response to this, where she says... Twitter should ban my mother uh, after this. I think she says, like, uh, you know, I have never been approached by Dave Grohl in more than a platonic way. I'm in a monogamous relationship and very happy. And she also refers to her as my biological mother, which I think is a yeah. pretty devastating uh, turn Not of phrase. Not a lot of warmth there. No. And I think Courtney Love eventually retracted that. But that's like another thing where like, I wonder where that came from. It just seems so random, like, to bring that up. Just purely to hurt? I don't know. And then, like... That's what's so terrible with these kind of like social media accusations. I mean, you can retract it, but, you know, it's still out there. Like you still Google that and that's still a thing that comes up. Like it's still in people's heads and everything. Retraction is almost beside the point, too. You know, that's definitely too little too late, especially in like the digital social media age, too. Yeah, I, I can only imagine it was purely just to lash out. So now that we're at the lowest point of this episode, it's time to bring up the Muppets. <laughs> yes. Here we go. So this is the same year. This is 2012. Courtney hits out at Dave for letting Smells Like Teen Spirit be used in the Jason Siegel Muppet movie that I never asked for. No one ever asked for. Uh, she was talking to the Daily News, and she said, we got no money from the Muppets. We got nothing. It made Jason Siegel feel special, but Dave knows Kurt wouldn't have wanted to be a Muppet. <laughs> Let's have a little thought experiment for a moment. Steven, do you think that Kurt would ever have wanted to be a Muppet? You know, I think he probably would have liked that, actually. You know, and again, I, he was in the Weird Al. Yeah, exactly. He let Weird Al do the was that smells like Nirvana parody. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he would have looked at the Muppets as being this sort of lovable product of his youth. You know, which I think is different than the Guitar Hero thing. That, yeah. that feels a little more crass to me. Whereas the Muppets, it's like everyone loves the Muppets. There was a childlike thing to Kurt Cobain, too. I think he appreciated, you know, like kids and, and, and kid culture. So I have no idea how he would have felt because, again, this was, what, I think 20 years after he died. So we're all speculating on what deceased Kurt Cobain would think of the Muppets. But I'm, I'm going on the pro side for that. Um, this is For those of you just joining us, we're speculating on whether Kurt Cobain would like to have been in the Muppets. <laughs> uh This all is leading up to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction, which occurs in 2014. And it seems like, you know, after all of this negativity that's been going on for for 20 years, that there's a fairly sudden, like, about face, like, for all the parties involved. Like, Courtney Love tells a story about how, you know, she was there at the ceremony with Francis Bean. She said that she hadn't even, like, seen or talked to Dave or Chris in 20 years. Apparently, they didn't even talk at the funeral, which seems really sad. That's shocking to me. Yeah, and crazy to me. But... Apparently, everyone, they ran into each other as these things often happen. They're they're by the bathroom and they run into each other and they just decide to suddenly put aside all this bad blood and they hug it out and they end up having like a really nice night at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction. And it seems like that is the turning point of this relationship, like where after just sniping at each other for so long, everyone all of a sudden is putting the guns down and deciding to be friends again. 20 years. I mean, do you really think that it was just purely a, I'm tired of carrying this around anymore? I'm, we're all about, you know, in our 50s now, like about to be. 
I just, I can't handle this anymore. Let's just, let's just end it. Or do you think that there was some kind of like other more, not to be cynical, but more business-minded reason why things were untangled? You know, I, I mean, it's impossible to say. I mean, I, I, yeah. I, I do think that there is something when you get older where if you're carrying around all this negative baggage, it's just not good for you. I mean, I think... You know, any psychologist would say that, you know, these things can only, you know, they can hurt your health. They can hurt your mental health. So th- there may have been an instinct there to just like let bygones be bygones and move forward. But yeah, you know, I, all the parties involved must realize that Nirvana to this day, I mean, they are this incredibly profitable brand. And for all of the weird things that have happened with Nirvana over the years, you know, like not even the Guitar Hero thing could really detract from the credibility that Nirvana has. You know, they're like the rare like 90s alt-rock band that I feel like younger generations embrace. You know, like each new generation of kids, it seems like, gets into Nirvana. So yeah, maybe on some level they all realize like... We're going to have to deal with each other for a long time yeah. to come. Like, let's make this good. Yeah, let's work together and make a bajillion dollars. You know, like what do we have to be upset <laughs> about at this point? And that's pretty much where it's at now i mean they're they're joint custodians of kurt's legacy and they're defending it from the likes of i guess like kfc and board games and other corporate interests and i guess in uh, 2018 courtney and the surviving members of nirvana filed a, a joint lawsuit against mark jacobs so now they're uh, as is so often the case in the music industry award ceremonies and lawsuits made friends of foes yes so heartwarming we're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor before we get to more rivals my name is johnny b good and i'm the host of the new podcast creating a con the story of bitcon over this nine-part series i'll explore the life and crimes of my best friend ray trapani i always wanted to be a criminal if someone's like oh what's your best way of making money i'm like oh we should start some sort of scheme you see ray has this unique ability to find loopholes and exploit them They collected $30 million. There were headlines about it. His company, Centratech, was one of the hottest crypto startups in 2017. It was going to change the world, until it didn't. I came into my office, opened my email, and the subject heading was FBI request. It was only a matter of time before the truth came out. You can only fake it till you make it for so long before they find out that your Harvard degree is not so crimson. How could you sit there and do something that you know will objectively cause more harm in the world? Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. All 12 episodes of The Passage are available now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I never thought I'd take my three young kids to Sicily to solve a century-old mystery, but that's what I'm doing in my new podcast, The Sicilian Inheritance. Join us as we travel thousands of miles on the beautiful and crazy island of Sicily. 
as I trace my roots back through a mystery for the ages and untangle clues within my family's origin story, which has morphed like a game of telephone through the generations. Was our family matriarch killed in a land deal gone wrong? Or was it by the Sicilian Mafia? A lover's quarrel? Or was she, as my father believed, a witch? Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we've now reached the part of the episode where we give the pro side for each part of the rivalry. Let's talk about Dave Grohl first. Look, Dave Grohl, you can't dispute the success that he's had, uh, both in Nirvana and in Foo Fighters. And, I mean, we take it for granted now that Foo Fighters are just like this stadium rock band, like the, I think, the epitome of mainstream rock at this point. But, you know, it seemed pretty unlikely in 1995 that Dave Grohl would have a thriving solo career. I mean, I feel like there were a lot of doubters at that time that, you know, that the drummer of this band would end up being a huge rock star. And Grohl has proven all the skeptics wrong. I mean, he's had an incredible career. Like I said before, he is the mayor of rock music. You know, he does have this status. You call them the, the Tom Hanks of rock music. He does have this status of everyone liking him, even though you might make jokes about always seeing him on award shows. It seems like whenever an award show needs, like, a uh, a token rocker, they call up Dave Grohl, and Dave Grohl shows up five minutes later with a guitar. Uh, <laughs> he's always down. He's always down. Uh, you know, we can make jokes about that, but, you know, he is an ambassador for rock music, and I appreciate that about him, and he does seem like a genuinely good guy, and he's a member of two of the most successful rock bands of the last 30 years, so to me, his legacy seems pretty airtight. Yeah, he seems to be one of those, like, one of the few rock stars who seems to get genuinely touched by fans. Like, I feel like that just comes across in, because he's famous for for being, you know, nice guy Dave Grohl, and uh, there is millions of examples of like a garage band in some small town. Some They broke some noise ordinance and then Dave Grohl wrote a letter to the local town council begging them to let these young young musicians practice because this is their workspace because, you know, young artists starting out, every, not everybody can afford a soundproof studio. We need this for music. I mean, just things like that. And like when the uh, there was a, a mining disaster and I guess some of the miners that were trapped down the mine wanted an iPod filled with Foo Fighters songs to kind of help them through. And Dave heard about this and invited them backstage to the next Foo Fighters show when they got out for multiple beers and became friendly with them and then even immortalized them in the track, The Battle of the Beaconsfield Miners. I just, I don't know. I, I feel like the authenticity to him is just off the charts. I feel like he, he gives this like sort of I would die for rock and roll feeling, which is, you know, maybe you could say is naive and kind of corny, but it just seems so so true and real. It's heartening. I, yeah, I, I'm totally, I buy into the, the Dave Grohl like, charisma, Mr. Nice Guy thing. I, I think he's the best. And, you know, I said this before, and I really mean it, that, you know, as much as I appreciate the albums that he's made with Foo Fighters, I do get sad that he's not playing drums in a rock band right now. I mean, you know, like when he was with Queens of the Stone Age, I thought that was incredible. Like, oh, I wish yeah. he just would have stayed with there. Or like, make another uh, Them Crooked Vultures record, you know, where you can just wail on drums. I mean, he really is a monster uh, of the drums, just a monster musician in general. So yeah, but the, that's Dave Grohl. Right, well, like the flip side to that, too, I mean, the fact that he plays everything, I mean, every every instrument on that first Foo Fighters record, I think that needs to be recognized, too. I mean, that's insane. I mean, that's in a class with, like, you know, McCartney and, you know, maybe not Prince level and Stevie Wonder for virtuosity, but still, that, that level of talent to be able to play everything like that is is nuts. I just want to shout that out, too. 
So moving over to the pro corny love side, and you know we haven't explored this a lot in this episode, but like these two really are such great contrasts. Even if you remove the Nirvana element, because I think Dave Grohl has an image that I think is like pretty carefully curated. You know, I do agree with you that I think he's authentically a nice guy and authentically loves rock and roll and all those things. But I think he does care about what people think about him, and he acts a certain way in public to, you know, never show his dark side, really. You know, he's pretty unflappable in his image. And then you have Courtney Love, who is the opposite of that. <laughs> she lets it all hang out. She is proudly a mess. She proudly shows off her contradictions. And I I love that about her. I really respect that. And to me, she's like a throwback to the old school type of rock star. The rock star that you really don't see all that much anymore because we live in a more sort of socially media sanctioned age, like where people are analyzing everything you do and you kind of have to be more perfect. And Courtney Love is like, I am going to show you all my flaws. And as we've talked about in this episode, I think it's really hard to just put her in any one slot. I think it's definitely true that she was a victim of sexism in her career and also in her dealings with Nirvana. And I also think it's true that she was a very ambitious person who seized an opportunity to put herself in the spotlight. And she's done that throughout her career. And I don't criticize her for that. I actually think she's always been pretty canny. And I always appreciate seeing her in the spotlight. I will read any Courtney Love interview. I will watch any televised appearance that she's on because she is going to be interesting, even when she's infuriating. You know, she's <laughs> never boring. So I really tip my cap to her. And also, I mean, it must be said that she was Kurt Cobain's wife and she's the mother of his child. And I think in the context of Nirvana, that does give her a considerable stature that should be respected. You know, even if she wasn't in the band, you know, as far as we know, you know, Kurt Cobain would have wanted her to be in this position in his place. So I think if you respect Kurt Cobain, you have to also afford that respect to Courtney Love. Yeah, that's really well said. I mean, and I also feel like she's acted out in all the ways that a lot of her male musical counterparts are romanticized for. But instead of that, she's been, you know, miscast as a sort of caricature, which I think is a disservice to her music, which is, you know, incredibly strong. And, and she's such an inspiration to generations now of... Uh, of Women in music who are looking for, you know, a strong, decisive, confident woman who unapologetically challenges the notion of what femininity is in music. And I think that she's such an important figure for that. And, you know, even her dark sides, you really got to wonder how much of the sort of the chip on her shoulder was born from just all the shit that she got from Nirvana fans. I mean, you, you, she was not exactly embraced not only by the band, but by fans with open arms. And you almost have to wonder how much she just self-reflexively just put up this like rock hard front of just, you know, fuck you to the world uh, as, as a result of that, because I'm sure all those things, there's the scene in um, Montage of Heck when uh, when she's reading an angry letter from a, a Nirvana fan uh, after uh, she was on the cover of some magazine with Kurt about how, oh yeah, that dirty, nasty Courtney woman running her big fat mouth makes me want to puke. I mean, just having to deal with that for years and years you really got to wonder how much of that factored into sort of the, you know, all the acting out that she would do in later years, too. So when we talk about these two together, I mean, look, they're stuck together. OK, <laughs> they are both, uh, you know, in charge of this, again, very successful brand, you know, that people still care about. And uh, after fighting for so long, it seems like they finally just accepted that we're going to be together, whether we like it or not. So we might as well figure out a way to get along. And, uh, you know, it seems like they're finally making it work. 
Yeah, I always kind of think of it as, uh, you know, like parents who went through a really bad divorce, but now are actually able to put on like a good face for the kids. Uh, in, in this case, us, the Nirvana fans, are the kids in this metaphor, I guess. But it's it's good that she made a joke on on some interview where she was saying like, all right, maybe me and Dave will do a duet on Islands in the Stream or something like that. Like, <laughs> I don't think there's ever going to be any kind of musical union, but the fact that they can at least be in a room together and, and not uh, not flip the table, I think is, uh, I'm thankful for that. Well, Jordan, I'm always thankful that we could talk about rivals on this show. We can both come as we are, <laughs> if we will, as rivals fans and, and talk about all these beefs and uh, delve into it for people's enjoyment each week. These puns are getting better and better at the end of every episode. I got to say, I I feel like I was stretching on this pun, but that's okay. Cause we've reached the end of the episode. Leave us a review. Let us know if you like the puns or not. (laughs) Actually, if you don't like the puns, we're probably going to continue to do them anyway. So just a warning there, but thank you again for joining us on this episode of rivals. We'll be back with more beefs and feuds and long simmering resentments next week. Rivals is a production of iHeartRadio. The executive producers are Sean Titone and Noel Brown. The supervising producers are Taylor Shacoin and Tristan McNeil. The producer is Joel Hatstaff. I'm Jordan Runtalk. And I'm Stephen Hyden. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Johnny B. Good, the host of the podcast Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin. This podcast dives deep into the story of Ray Trapani and his company Centratech. I'll explore how 320-somethings built a company out of lies, deceit, and greed. I've been saying since a very young age that I was going to be a millionaire. If someone's like, oh, what's your best way of making money? I'm like, oh, we should start some sort of scheme. Listen to Creating a Con, the story of Bitcoin, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I am the ferryman. In the shadows of the afterlife, the ferryman of souls guides America's most influential spirits to their eternal rest. Where are you taking me? Are you death? This road is not on any map. How much for a ticket? All I ask for in payment is a tale. I don't know who got to Kennedy first. And the devastation those first bombs caused. I've never been to hell, but I know intimately the hymns of the damned. Binge the season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts.